I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. This is a special episode of The Truth of the Matter. It's a crossover episode with our Coronavirus Crisis Update podcast, which I host with my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Steve Morrison. On this crossover episode, we had with us Dr. Richard Lascelles, who is among the exceptional South African experts on the front lines of discovering and investigating Omicron in South Africa. Dr. Lascelles is an infectious disease physician at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban, South Africa, and he's a member of the Network for Genomic Surveillance in South Africa. Andrew and I are delighted to be joined today by Dr. Richard Lascelles. He's an infectious disease physician at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban, South Africa. He's a, a member of the Network for Genomic Surveillance in South Africa, which has been terribly important in this period in time in terms of the tracking of the Omicron virus variant. He's also worked half-time at Caprisa, which is a research effort based at the university led by Salim Abdul-Karim and Quaresha Abdul-Karim, along with Richard, doing groundbreaking work on HIV and TB. Over many years, we've had the good fortune of visiting with them several times in Durban and hosting them here in Washington and elsewhere over the course of the last 15 years or so. So Richard, thank you so much for being with us today. I know you are leading a very hectic life so much has happened in South Africa and in the region in the last week. I'd like to ask you to start by just describing to us the process by which the Omicron came to notice, be noticed and give us a bit of a rundown because it's an amazing story. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the introduction, Stephen. Nice to be with you today. I mean, if I just tell you about the process in South Africa first, I mean, we have, as you say, we have this network for genomic surveillance. We've been tracking this virus from the very beginning, from March last year. We've been tracking the evolution. We've unfortunately picked up these variants in South Africa before, like the beta variant around this time last year. And recently, we'd, we'd had this kind of terrible delta wave here in South Africa, and, and that had subsided. And one of our private testing labs, private diagnostic labs, started noticing a few samples coming up positive on the PCR assay, but flagging with what's called this S-gene dropout. Now, that's where the PCR test comes up as positive, but it's only detecting two out of the three genes that it targets. So the, the spike gene, it doesn't detect because there's a specific mutation in that target. And they saw a couple of results like that, and then they saw a couple more. And they were curious because that's something that was seen with the alpha variant, which you'll remember emerged in the UK around this time last year. And the alpha variant, we never saw much of here. We saw a little bit of it, but it never really took off. So the private diagnostic lab and the scientists there were just curious. And they said, we're part of this network. We need to get these samples to our nearest sequencing center. So they contacted the National Institute for Communicable Diseases in Johannesburg, 
our national public health institute and they said we've noticed this this a few cases popping up with this s gene dropout the nicd sequenced those samples and actually lancet labs themselves sequenced the samples at the same time because they had capacity in in house to do the sequencing and the sequences came out and clearly they looked very abnormal and they looked very different to what we'd been seeing with delta and with the kind of stepwise evolution of delta so we immediately called a meeting as the network as soon as we saw these sequences we called a meeting to discuss amongst ourselves and we were very clear that this was something significant was very different to to everything else that we were seeing and that kind of set in a chain of events of of then informing the senior scientists in the country and informing the minister of health and trying to rapidly get an understanding of of what this was now at at the same time as this was happening there were actually our colleagues in Botswana who we work very closely with had deposited some sequences on the gisaid database from some recent uh, positive tests that they had done and also hong kong had deposited a sequence from a traveler from south africa picked up on on arrival in in quarantine and one of the uk scientists who works with their kind of genomics network had picked up on these highly unusual sequences with with a large number of mutations and it kind of flagged it on twitter as something of concern and something to to keep a watch on and that needed more information and that was then picked up by the uk media and from there things kind of escalated into the into the international media so at the time that we were discovering this in south africa and informing our authorities here the kind of media storm around this very unusual variant was was just taking off so that's why there was then a kind of bit of pressure and rush to 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 get information out so that so that we could kind of try and give clear information about this without the kind of usual scare stories about frankenstein variants and mutations now many of the scientists who've been commenting on this have emphasized that in fact this variant this new lineage of the virus is quite exceptional in the sense that it brings together some pretty scary combinations the fact that it's 32 mutations on the spike protein 26 of them unique and not seen before and that it covers all three zones of binding process i mean it's it is scary on the face of it it seems to me and i wanted to ask you to explain to our listeners why why is it that people are so, seem to be so alarmed or worried people who are sci- practicing scientists why have the alarm bells gone off and, and richard i just wanted you to to add on to that it's 32 mutations on the spike protein that have raised alarms but it's 50 overall mutations i believe explain how that is a, a departure from you know the previous variants and why that was so notable to you yeah, so so I mean, as you say, I guess the first thing that jumps out at you is just the number of mutations. So so clearly, that's what 
piques your interest and say, I have to look at this closer because that's an extraordinary number of mutations, much more than we expect at this stage in the pandemic. But it's when you start just looking closely at where those mutations are and which ones you're familiar with. And unfortunately, we've had to kind of develop a pretty deep understanding of the of the different mutations here in South Africa because we have seen these different variants previously. So we know what the kind of key regions in the genome are for immune protection, for example. We know where the neutralizing antibodies target. They target the receptor binding domain of the spike protein and the N-terminal domain of the spike protein. So when we see lots and lots of mutations clustered in those regions, then it gives us concern. When we also see mutations clustered around what's called the furin cleavage site, that gives us concerns because mutations around that area are thought to be one of the reasons for the for the kind of transmissibility advantage of of delta and some of the other variants and and in this variant there's kind of three mutations clustered around the furin cleavage site as opposed to the the one that we've seen in in other variants of concern and then there were some other things and and you were right to highlight that we tend to always first focus on the spike protein because that's the the critical part of the virus for getting into our cells and it's the critical part of the virus for the vaccine protection but we also look now very closely at the mutations outside spike and as you say there's again a, a higher number of mutations outside spike than than we've seen before and there are some mutations outside the spike gene that also, we have some understanding of that may be associated with evasion of other parts of our immune protection, what's called our innate immune response, and that might also be associated with increased infectivity of, of cells. So again, might contribute to, to higher transmissibility of, of the virus. So I think these things we we obviously have an initial look and you get a you get a gut feeling you get a sense from what you're seeing of what looks concerning and then you clearly take then a a, a day or so to to really look in depth and scour all the literature and, and and all the resources to to get a deeper understanding of of what's there can i ask you just based on what we know today and I realize we're awaiting clarification on the key dimensions of how transmissible or contagious, how pathogenic it may be, and whether it evades whether it evades control and evades immunity, whether it's natural or vaccine caused. We're awaiting that. But given what we know today, what would you expect the profile for Omicron to be? I mean, I think what we're seeing play out here gives us gives us some understanding already. I mean, clearly, it's a highly transmissible variant. Now, as you say, it's going to take time to to understand its relative transmissibility compared to Delta, but it's clearly highly transmissible. It's spreading very efficiently in the population here at the moment. 
and it's spreading very efficiently in a population that we have good evidence has high levels of immunity to previous versions of this virus. So we have population with high levels of in, immunity from previous infection and to some degree from vaccination, although we only have a, a third of the adult population fully vaccinated. And it's actually slightly lower in, in Hauteng province where this virus has, has kind of first started spreading. So again, that tells us that it seems likely if it's spreading so efficiently through the population with high levels of immunity, that tells us that the immune evasion that we would predict from the mutation profile seems to be playing out in the real world, that it's, that it's clearly transmitting as efficiently as the other highly transmissible variants that we've seen. That's very clear what you're saying, that we already know enough in just watching how fast it's come to dominate within South Africa, starting in Gauteng province and then now being nationalized, that you can surmise much higher transmissibility and it's evading immunity protections. I, I would just be a bit cautious. I, I'm not sure that we can say both of those things. I think what what we what we need to understand is where is the balance there. So so and and these things are of course connected. But I, I, what I was kind of saying was whether it's more transmissible than Delta or about the same. It's at the moment that doesn't matter for for how it's spreading because it's it's able to evade that immunity that many people had built up recently from the Delta wave, if it's able to get around that and still cause infection and, and spread from that individual, then then it clearly can, can survive very uh, well in that population. Richard, how long is it going to take us to know just how dangerous this variant is? You know, today already you have, you know, BioNTech's Uber Sahin saying, it's not likely to cause severe illness, but you know we don't really know yet. And this is the disease of we don't know. What is your thinking on this now with regard to the spread of serious illness? So there, I mean, it is really just too early to tell at the moment, but it's the clearly the critical question is, is how well the, the vaccine protection and to some extent the protection from prior infection how well that holds up against severe disease and hospitalization and death. So does it take some hit from this variant? And, and if so, how, how much of a hit? Or does it hold up very strongly, as we've seen with the other variants of concern so far? So it's that, it's that critical question to, to understand, is there any, any drop-off in the vaccine effectiveness against severe disease. And I think that's going to take us three or four weeks to, to really start getting clarity on that question. And maybe you could tell us a bit, our lay listeners and ourselves, how this scientific process sort of plays itself through. I mean, I understand you're in a laboratory, you're building a model of the virus, you're testing it in various fashions in order to try and answer these questions around transmissibility, how pathogenic, how much does it evade? Can you describe how this all happens now? Because I'm assuming that every lab in South Africa 
is busy at the moment and many other labs outside of South Africa. Yeah, I mean that's right. I mean you've we've now kind of set in chain. You've got you've got the laboratory studies that need to happen, and you've got the kind of field studies that need to happen, and and the kind of analysis of your surveillance data. If we take the lab studies first, again we're very fortunate in South Africa that we that we have the this these labs with the real expertise to do these studies called the neutralization assays. So that's where you are, you're either growing the live virus and, and working with, with the live virus in the lab, or as you say, you construct a virus with all these, with all these different mutations. And then you test that against plasma that's been taken from people that have been vaccinated or that have been infected with one of the earlier variants of concern. So, so for us, that would be Delta or, or Beta. And then you see how well the antibodies in that plasma are able to neutralize the virus. And so that gives you a, a sense of um, that protection from the vaccines or, or from infection, how well that's going to hold up against this variant. And that's where we expect, based on the mutation profile, that there's going to be quite a substantial reduction in the neutralization of this variant. The other key piece of lab work is to look at the T cells. And this is what's critical because this is what then ties to the question about the protection against severe disease. Because the protection against infection is probably largely these antibody response. The protection against severe disease brings in these other parts of the immune system and particularly the T cells. And what we know about the T cells is that they target multiple regions on the spike protein, hundreds of different regions. So even though there's this, what we think is a high number of mutations in the spike gene, the chances that that knocks out a significant number of the T-cell targets is much lower. And so the thinking is that your T-cells will still have good activity despite all these mutations in, in that protein. But that needs the lab work to understand that in, in better detail. And, and again, we have expert labs here in South Africa that have previously worked a lot on HIV and T cells and can do that lab work. And they've already started with that lab work. And so the neutralizing antibodies and the T cell work that comes together to give you a sense in the laboratory of how well the immune protection is going to hold up against this variant. So the exceptional scientific community and the exceptional institutional laboratory and research and field trial capacities that exist in South Africa, they're all, they all track back to the several decades of investments in battling HIV along with other infectious diseases. Is that a fair estimation? Absolutely. And, 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 and it's all the different strands because you've got these labs that can do this work but they also have to they have to get samples from vaccine studies and so we've again been fortunate because we've got the expertise here 
from HIV vaccines and, and other vaccine research that many of the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine trials happened here in South Africa. And so we have these serum samples from people that have been vaccinated with, with different vaccines. And as you say, this has all been built up for HIV, TB, the other pandemics that we're still, still battling. By that same token, Richard, South Africa, can you explain why South Africa is an environment that's been favorable to the emergence of variants? You know, I know that this has also become politicized, that your president, Cyril Ramposa, is saying, you know, the country of South Africa and its sister Southern African countries are being discriminated against. But South Africa is a place where you know the, the mutations and the and the disease is is easier to spread. Can you explain why that is? Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing is is that point you make. I mean, we we have had challenges controlling this virus from from the beginning. We've we've had three devastating waves of of infection here associated with a high number of deaths. So so we've had challenges, and and that's because. Clearly, we we have highly densely populated areas in, in many parts of the country where people are mixing a lot, where it's extremely difficult to kind of adhere to the public health and social measures, the social distancing uh, and everything else, as well as obviously a lot of people working in, in environments where there's a high risk of, of transmission. So a lot of essential workers in, in mines, in healthcare. Um, and, and all that. So controlling the spread has been difficult. We did have delays to our vaccine program, which hasn't helped with controlling the, the, the pandemic. And then there's this issue of where do these variants actually emerge from? Where do they come from? And one of the theories there, which I think this variant Omicron will probably give some more support to, is that there's this very small group of people who are very heavily immunocompromised for, for different reasons. And that might be uh, people who've had an organ transplant or people who are on cancer chemotherapy who are unable to clear the virus effectively. And so they get a chronic infection with this virus that may last for several months. And as that virus is replicating over the several months, it evolves because it's evolving to try and escape the, the immune response inside that, that host. And if that virus is then mutated to, to create a variant that can spread, then it may emerge and spread into the population. And one of the things we've seen here is that that may happen in in a very small group of people uh, with HIV that are not on effective treatment and that have very low levels of immunity. Um, so they're either not yet diagnosed or they're not yet on treatment or they're on treatment that's not, not currently working. And we've seen a couple of cases where we can show this kind of long-term infection over several months and can show how the vir virus evolves over that time. And so that's one theory for why we might have seen kind of some of these variants of concern emerging in, in this part of the world. And it highlights to us, going back, is, is this need to take a, a much broader 
kind of response to to the challenges that we have here that that at the same time as we're fighting this pandemic we we really mustn't lose track and lose and and lose progress in dealing with these other uh, pandemics such as HIV Richard let's talk about the fallout since this has happened you know as i as i mentioned a second ago your president Cyril Ramposa said that South Africa and sister and southern countries are being discriminated against. There's a, a global economic impact. Clearly, South Africa and the scientists who discovered this variant made the right decision in bringing this public. But does South Africa and does your community feel like you're now being punished for doing the right thing? Yeah, 100%, because these restrictions and these travel bans have come without any pledge of support to the region. They've they've come without recognizing the, the impact that these are going to have and some form of, of support to, to help us deal with this ongoing pandemic in this region and particularly to kind of make progress on the on the vaccine inequity issue and and to get vaccines here and to get them distributed in into people's into people's arms so i think we've clearly feel it's unjustified and and we also feel that as this week and next couple of weeks plays out we'll probably show that these bans are are ineffective that the virus has already disseminated widely and, and is is already spreading in, in multiple locations. It's pretty clear. I mean, even the, the experts who announce these travel bans in the next breath admit that they're not effective and they're they're minimally effective, if, if at all. And yet it creates these massive disincentives against transparency and speed of response. And it deepens the sense of outrage and alienation in those countries that have been living with vaccine apartheid, living with this reality and struggling against it with inadequate external support. So I wonder, is this just seen as another indignity visited upon South Africa uh, in a global system that is chaotic and so deeply inequitable? I, I think it is. I mean, I think it's it's in in many ways it's not a surprise because because it's something we've seen before. And I and I think clearly we also need to think of the broader region because here we've got other countries in southern Africa that haven't detected a case of this variant yet, and yet have the same restrictions and and same bans put put on on travel and and again without without any support package coming in to to really help the region deal with this and i i think it's it's just highlighting the continued moral failure really of of the the global approach to this pandemic this moment feels like a major pivot in the global pandemic do you do you agree with that I think it may be. I think we need to see how this plays out. It, it it may, of course, be a major pivot if if we find that there's a significant change in the in the vaccine protection, for example, and the vaccines need to be updated. We need to get those out in, in 2022. We need to see if that if that is a kind of major step change, as as, as you say. I think clearly what we're looking at is whether the whether it's a major 
step change in how the world approaches the pandemic and whether there, whether that realization finally translates into concerted action about dealing with the with the problem and dealing with the the vaccine apartheid that you mentioned so in that sense i'm i'm still not sure whether it will be a step change i of course hope it is but i remain skeptical about about how uh, the world is approaching this Richard, already Omicron has become polarized and people are using it for their own aims when it comes to the pandemic. Could you comment on that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that's what we've seen throughout the pandemic is is that any of these kind of big developments in the pandemic, people, of course, use that event to, to fit their narrative. So, of course, here you're going to get the anti-vaxxer movement looking at this and saying, here, here's our, here's our proof that, that these vaccines don't work. We, we've told you all along. And, and, and look, here, here it's clear as day. And that clearly feeds into the, the misinformation and disinformation around the vaccine and what they're designed to do. And, and then you get the kind of other narrative that that this is nothing to nothing to to worry about and that this is the end game that this is the this is the virus evolving to to be less pathogenic less virulent and and people taking kind of very very early anecdotes about about people having mild disease and kind of fitting again their narrative they've wanted all along that this virus will will evolve to become less pathogenic and and again that's from misunderstanding of of virus evolution but it but it's still quite widespread and and so again people then use that to 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 criticize the measures that countries will take to deal with what they consider to be something of of real concern we ask each of our guests at the conclusion of our conversation to close with an answer to the question, and what gives you the greatest hope and optimism in this period? This is a difficult, difficult period, right? I mean, South Africa, as you've said, has gone through three devastating waves. It's really learned some tough, hard lessons. Uh, it's struggled. It's a remarkable community that's committed in science, public health, political leadership on this, but not out of the woods yet by any means. So what gives you um, hope and optimism? You obviously get up every day and go go to work and work hard. I mean, I guess broadly two things. I mean, I think first of all, in terms of how this might affect us and the impact of this variant, I'm I'm hopeful and optimistic that because we have more tools available to us than than we had last year and particularly the vaccines but also some of these therapeutics that that are coming through and and look to be effective that we've that we've got hope that we're in a better position to to deal with with these variants even if they 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 have a substantial impact on some of these interventions but that hope will only be realized if we deal with the problem of distributing these tools equitably to the areas that most need them and then the second thing is is that i, I i'm optimistic because i know that healthcare workers the healthcare system 
the scientific community here in South Africa has remained resilient through this and has remained together. And I know however hard it's going to be and, and however traumatic it's going to be, I know that the health system will cope with another wave of, of infection. And I know that the scientific community will stay strong and will stay uh, transparent and open because we have never, uh, from the beginning of this pandemic, we have always understood that this is a global pandemic, that we have a responsibility, particularly to Africa and the continent, but, but to the whole world. And, and we stay strong in that and in our commitment to, to transparency, to rigor, and, and to information sharing. Thank you so much. And you've been very generous and extremely eloquent, rich conversation. And uh, we've learned a lot today. And um, I hope we stay in touch as this drama unfolds. And we wish you the very best and all of your colleagues in Durban and Hope we'll see you again soon in Durban. Thank you. And I, I, I look forward to that day when we can welcome you here and, and, and meet in person. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 